Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Professor William Wallace for a conversation about who most would consider one of the marquee Italian Renaissance artists, Michelangelo. And the purpose of this conversation is not to be an overview of Michelangelo's life or an overview of his work, but instead in this conversation, Professor Wallace and I focus in on the later period of Michelangelo's life. We talk about things such as his writings, his artwork, what was he being commissioned? So what was he being paid to do in the later years of his life? Why did he ultimately die in Rome versus uh, Florence? And, And how and why did his body get back to Florence instead of Rome and more? William Wallace is a professor in the Department of Art, History, and Archaeology at Washington University in St. Louis in the U.S. He has studied Michelangelo, his writings, his artwork, his life overall for many years now. And Professor Wallace has written extensively on Michelangelo, including a couple books as examples. Michelangelo, God's Architect, The Story of His Final Years and Greatest Masterpiece, which was published by Princeton University Press, and Michelangelo, The Artist, The Man, and His Times, which was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Bill. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Okay, so who was Michelangelo? Well, I think he's probably familiar to most people, but he's probably familiar in the way that um, is most obvious, that is that he's the carver of the David and the Pieta and the painter of the Sistine ceiling. And that is the story that most people know about Michelangelo, the kind of, I would say, the heroic Michelangelo who achieved great things very early in his career. And the book that I've written and I think we're talking about today is about the last two decades of Michelangelo's life, his 70s and his 80s, when in fact he becomes busier than ever in his life and is more creative than ever. But these are the years that I think probably most Americans at least know very little about. Uh, and so this is the story I wanted to tell in this last book. And before we get to his later years, just for someone very new to Michelangelo as a, as a figure, um, what what do we know about the types of art that he painted over the years and what he might have been inspired by? Well, it's funny because he was born, really, he was well born. He was born an aristocrat, so it's sort of funny that he became an artist at all. He wasn't really destined to become an artist. Um, But he then sort of fell into becoming a sculptor, and that's how we know him best. Mm. Uh, He did carve the Pieta at about the age when most college graduates are just finishing college Hmm. and then he goes on to carve the david and that's a pretty impressive piece about the time somebody would go to graduate school and then at age 33 never having painted a picture never having painted a fresco in his life he painted the sistine ceiling so without any kind of background he paints the greatest fresco of all time and then around age 40 never having trained as an architect he becomes an architect and it's really actually more influential as an architect than either as a painter or a sculptor because nobody really could imitate 
Michelangelo's paintings and sculpture, sculpture, but, but they could actually learn a lot from his architecture. And then around age 50, he started into poetry. Um, so mm. here's an, an artist, architect, painter, sculptor, and he was the world's greatest engineer of the Renaissance. If you ask somebody who was the great engineer of the Renaissance, everybody would say Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. Well, Leonardo did think about doing a lot of engineering projects, but he actually never carried any of them out. Michelangelo just did it. He carried out some phenomenally complicated and impressive engineering projects in his life. So really, I think it's Michelangelo's the doer rather than the thinker, imaginer, like Leonardo. Hmm. And what would be an example of one of the engineering projects that he, he worked on that was noteworthy? Well, he transported about a thousand marble blocks from the quarries to uh, about 90 miles from Carrara to Florence. And these are marble blocks that are larger than anything that had been quarried since Roman times, a thousand years before. So some of these blocks were eight tons or larger. And just moving blocks of marble is an engineering feat in and of itself. Then he raises the dome of St. Peter's, which is part of the story I tell at the end of in this last book. And that's an engineering feat to build a dome the size of the Pantheon, but raising it 250 feet in the air. So these are the kinds of engineering accomplishments that are really kind of stunning. Not to mention just carving a David, uh, a block of marble that's 17 feet tall, and moving it through the streets and erecting a, a block of marble that's 17 feet tall. All of these things are, are really kind of astonishing accomplishments, which were recognized in their own day for, for being engineering feats. Hmm. So he's in uh, 15, 16th century uh, Florence. What was his religious affiliation and um, how did religion inform his art, do you believe at all? Well, in 16th century Florence, 16th century Italy, there was only one religion for the most part. It was Catholicism. Um, but I think of Michelangelo having lived, having lived almost 90 years, 89 years and three weeks shy of, of 90, uh, he lived through three different ages. He lived through an age where he grew up as a young man in an age where Catholicism was the universal religion. And then he lived long enough to watch Martin Luther break away from the church. And suddenly Catholicism, in a sense, the world of, of, of a universal religion fell apart. And then he lived long, long enough to watch the Catholic Church react in what we call the Counter-Reformation and sort of react against Protestantism. So that is... He, and in every one of those three ages, Michelangelo had something to contribute artistically to that religious age. So to answer your question, though, mm -hmm. Michelangelo all the way through is a deeply religious Catholic believer in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did that show up a lot in his art? Absolutely. We start with, let's say, the... Florentine, uh, the, the Pieta that he made very early in his life that's in St. Peter's today is one of the most beloved sculptures in the world of the Madonna holding Christ, the dead Christ on her, on, her, on her lap. 
is one of the earliest works that Michelangelo ever made. Then he paints the Sistine ceiling, and that is at the very center of, of, Catholic, of the Catholic religion. This is where the popes are elected into the papacy. And in that same chapel is the Last Judgment, which is the great fresco that he painted as a kind of counter-reformatory assertion of Catholic faith in saints and relics, when, in fact, Luther was saying, well, we don't believe in saints, we don't believe in relics. And here's the Last Judgment saying, no, the Catholic Church absolutely believes in these. Hmm. Okay, tell us more about his later years. Well, the later years, uh, the 70s and the 80s, um, like many people, like even today, about age 70, we begin to think about retirement. And Michelangelo certainly was thinking about retirement. At age 70, he had finally finished the tomb of Julius II, which was the great project that he'd been working on for almost 40 years. And when the, that tomb was finally installed, and Michelangelo had been living in Rome for decades and decades, and he's a Florentine, he wanted to return home to retirement. And he had every reason in business and opportunity to do so now but suddenly the pope comes to him and tells him that he's going to take over the building of new saint peter's new saint peter's the church that we see today in rome the center of catholicism the great church of saint peter's had been started in 1505 we're now in 1545 so for 40 years this church had been under construction uh, to rebuild the greatest church in Christendom. But it was a total mess. By then, there was already a sequence of six different architects who had come in, and every one of them having presented a new idea for what should be done with this new church. So but each new architect had added one part and another part, or changed something and done this or done that. And by the time in 1545, when the Pope comes to Michelangelo, what we're looking at was something that looked more like a Roman ruin than a new church. Mm. And Michelangelo, he's 70 years old, and he says, wait a minute, I, I want to retire. <laughs> I'm 70 years old. I'm not even an architect, although he has built things in, since he is about age 40, as I said. But really, he didn't think of architecture as his main project or his main métier. But you do not say no to a pope. And when the pope says, you're taking over St. Peter's, mm -hmm. Michelangelo took over St. Peter's. So he had to take over this absolutely massive project, mm -hmm. which was a complete mess at age 70. And for the next two decades, that's what he devoted himself to doing. And if you ask anybody, although he only devoted 17 years or almost 18 years to building that church, which actually took 150 years to build, Michelangelo did more in that 18 years to stamp his authorship on that building. So if we ask anybody who built St. Peter's, nobody's going to say Bramante, Sangallo, or... Even Bernini, it's Michelangelo built St. Peter's. And so where did that project get to by the end of his life? 
was, as he did in sculpture, he focused on the torso, the center of the church, okay. the ground plan and the piers that supported the dome. And the dome was the central, most important aspect of that church. That was the defining, the defining character of the, of the Church of St. Peter's. It's the thing that you see all over Rome is the great dome of St. Peter's. It's the dome that every church ever since has imitated. So he built the foundations for the dome and had just gotten started when he died. But like any building, if you build the foundations and build really good foundations, the building above it is already defined by its foundations. Mm -hmm. So the dome, even though he did not ever see the dome completed, the dome is still Michelangelo's dome. It's his design. It's he built the foundations for it. He built the church and the piers to support it. And it's his church. What do we know about how he was as a leader, as a colleague during the project? That's a wonderful question because the general, the general, let's say, story of Michelangelo is that he couldn't get along with anybody. He did everything by himself. He even painted the Sistine ceiling without any help. Um, and my very first article, actually, ever when I wrote uh, as an academic was on the Sistine he had 13 people helping him on the Sistine. Uh, they had to mix the paints and, and trim brushes and help move the cartoons around. It's a very complicated project to paint a Sistine ceiling, 3,000 square feet of, of painting on a ceiling. Um, but the point is that none of those people were doing anything that important. And the project is so massively impressive that we give Michelangelo the credit for doing it because he was director of the project and the designer of everything. But the, the point is that Michelangelo really was a very good manager of people. And he went on from managing 13 people painting the Sistine ceiling to managing 300 people at the Church of San Lorenzo in Florence when he was working for the Medici. And he really became, and I wrote an early book on this, um, I called Michelangelo the Entrepreneur. He was really a very good businessman and a director of human labor. He didn't, he was not good at training people, but he was very good at hiring people who would be able to help carry out his projects. So by the time he gets to St. Peter's and takes over St. Peter's, he has actually extraordinarily good experience about knowing how to choose the right people to direct the project and to run a very complicated business enterprise, a construction enterprise that probably incorporated or employed about, again, about 300 people. Hmm. Did he work on any other art pieces in his later years outside of this project? He did indeed. Um, it wasn't just St. Peter's. He was in charge of about six other architectural projects at the same time mm. because he's the architect to the Pope. And the Pope is very ambitious. This is Pope Paul III, Farnese. And so at the same time, yes, he's designing the Porta Pia, Santa Maria degli Angeli, um, the Farnese Palace. So he has, uh, he's in charge of multiple architectural sites. And this is where it becomes extremely important for him to identify trustworthy individuals 
who understand his design and are going to carry out the projects according to his directions. And these are this is where he becomes an extremely good identifier of quality, uh, a quality control through well-chosen individuals. Then at the same time, he's also still maintaining his interest in carving marble. And most of this is carving for himself. There are two great sculptures that we know that he was carving during these last two decades. The Florentine Pietà, which is a sculpture of a dead Christ being lowered into the tomb. And this great sculpture was intended for Michelangelo's own grave. He was carving his own grave memorial. And he ran into problems that it's a very ambitious sculpture, there are mm. four figures in it, and there's many problems, both technical, but also psychological. The idea of carving your own grave memorial, if you finish your grave memorial, then ah, mm. you're ready to die. So I think there was some, some kind of a block, let's say, to finishing off this work. So he started another one. So before he finished that one, he started another Pietà, which is the Rondinini Pietà, which is the very last sculpture he ever carved, mm. which is a, 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 a marble sculpture still in Milan today, very, very unfinished, but many people find it very, very moving nonetheless, partly because of its unfinished character. You can almost see the 80-year-old, 88-year-old man. We know he was carving it three or four days before he died. He was still working on it. One sort of sees this, the struggle of a, an old man still carving marble, trying to elicit an idea of this death of Christ facing his own death, Michelangelo facing his own death. And he, he passes away in Rome, right? He dies in Rome, yes. He dies in Rome, and, but he's a Florentine, and so the Florentines, he, by then he's extremely famous. He's a world-famous artist, he, having lived almost 89 years, or almost 90 years, which is about twice the average age in the Renaissance, where average age is about 45 or 40. So he, by the time he dies, he's world-famous. Uh, everybody knows him in the world. Uh, so the Florentines come down and steal his body. They want to bury him in Florence. So he, although he dies in Rome, he's stolen away and is buried in Santa Croce in Florence. Because by then he's almost considered a saint. Do you, do you mean literally stolen? Literally like in a stolen. surreptitious kind of way? stolen from Rome, put in straw, and taken up to Florence and buried quickly in Santa Croce. So the Florentines could claim him. And so they do. Mm. And to his tomb in Santa Croce is one of the most you know, visited tombs in the world. Hmm. And why I asked initially about where he died is he mentioned um, the last piece, the, the marble piece, which is now in Milan. Was that a commission piece? How did the marble piece arrive in Milan? No, because uh, it was in Rome. It was in his studio when he died. Um, and he was, as I said, working on it in the last few days. No, it, it, it just... Because it was unfinished, once he died and he was stolen away, people just sort of ignored these sculptures that were left over and they were unfinished. And so this sculpture passed into a Roman family that was the Rondinini Roman family. 
And the Rondininis also had a branch of their family up in Milan. So they moved to Milan, but maybe a hundred years later from Rome, mm. it was, it, it stayed in Rome for quite some time. And then eventually moved to Milan with the Rondinini family who owns it. Mm. And then eventually moved to a, a, a the Rondinini gave it to a state, to the state of, of Italy. Okay. Did he keep a journal in his later years? Well, no, he didn't keep a journal, but he's a great writer. Um, we have um, almost 600 letters from Michelangelo and 900 letters written to Michelangelo. So we have an immense amount of material. And this is really the material I've used to write my books on Michelangelo. We have more writing about and of from Michelangelo than any other artist. Although Leonardo left us many, 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 many pages of notebooks very little of it is personal and he doesn't really write very much about his own life but Michelangelo has a huge circle of friends about 1100 persons he knew about 1100 persons and he communicated and corresponded with a large group of them so much of this correspondence still survives <clears throat> and while he didn't uh, keep a journal he kept what we call ricordi which are just records and these are incidental miscellaneous things. Uh, sometimes they're uh, what I ate for lunch today, or uh, oftentimes they're sort of receipts for uh, payments and things like this. So we get glimpses, fragmentary glimpses of things he's done in his life and people he's met, places he's gone. So they're very, very, very vivid, but fragmentary. But it's a huge amount of material that we have surviving for Michelangelo. So there's a lot hmm. to know and to deal with in learning about this artist. Probably uh, keeps you uh, excited over the years, having that much uh, literature and writings at your fingertips. <laughs> well, it is. And, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say that I've been you know, writing about Michelangelo for about 40 years. And I thought oh, at the time I wrote that first bi the biography, I thought, okay, I'm done. In 2010, I, I wrote a biography of Michelangelo. Yeah. And yet, then I realized, my God, there's, a, there's another whole story here to tell. And there's yeah. so much more material. And I don't think I'm done yet. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, based on his writings, do you get a sense of what he thought about life and what he thought about death? Oh, yeah. No, very, very much. The first thing I would say is, um, he is well born. He really is born into an aristocratic family. So he's extremely well educated and he writes extremely well. He has a beautiful handwriting and he's very self-conscious about his writing. So he's concerned about things like grammar and, and legibility and even orthography at a time when there was not standard spelling and things like this. He talks to his, he writes to his nephew. There's a huge number of letters to his nephew uh, who is his only surviving heir and so in a way he's sort of training his heir into how to be an aristocrat to take over the family duties and you can see that he's very concerned to educate the nephew in what is the proper behavior of a, an aristocrat well-born buonarotto buon, uh, buon from, from our family that is, learn how to 
spell correctly, write better letters. Michelangelo mm. writes at one point to his nephew saying, you write like the biggest ass in the world. Until you can write a better, a better letter, please don't write me. Your letters give me a headache. <laughs> so he's very concerned about proper behavior and proper presentation in society. Uh, he's very self-conscious, even in the way he dresses. Uh, he's very, he, he purchases only Florentine clothes because they were the best in the world, best made and the most expensive. Um, so he's very conscious about his position in society and how, they're, how he presents himself and how his family is presented. He lived in Florence for quite some time, died in Rome. Um, is there any evidence that he desired to have his um, final days of his life in Florence. How did he, you know, said another way, how did he end up passing away in, in Rome and not, not Florence? It's, it's kind of a sad story in a sense because he moved to Rome about halfway through his life in a way with the intention always of coming back to Florence because he really is deeply attached to his family and his hometown as most Italians are there they are Florentines or Romans before they're Italians they claim themselves to be either from Venice or from Florence or from Rome long before they say they're Italian um, and Michelangelo was deeply deeply loyal to uh, Florence where he owned a lot of property and this was extremely important to him as well that they had a footprint in Florence so his move to Rome was purely because of politics at one point. Um, he was not there. He was a persona non gratis in Florence for a while because of his politics. But once he moved to Rome, he became the papal architect for one after the other after the other of popes. And each pope, as each pope died, Michelangelo intended to move back to Florence and become once again a Florentine artist. But each pope decided, no, you're too important. I'm going to employ you. And as I said earlier, you do not say, I'm sorry, pope, I'm leaving. Because when the pope says he wants you, you listen to the pope. So here's an artist who worked for nine different popes. And at the end of his life, it was five in a row. And every one of those popes he outlived. And each time he kept thinking, okay, the pope is dead. I'm moving back to Florence. And then the next pope would say, no, 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 I would like to employ you doing this and that and that. So it's kind of sad because he really, really desperately wanted to go back to Florence. And especially at the start of this story at age 70, when he really thought he had the chance to do so and really did not want to take over St. Peter's. Mm. He really wanted to go back home um, and never was able to do so. He lived a long life. He did a lot. He was well recognized for his work. How do you think he should be best remembered? That's a lovely question. That's a wonderful question. Well, I think how he should be best remembered. I mean, he is best remembered because of the David and the Pieta and the Sistine. I think that's never going to change. Uh, that's how he's well known. And I'm not going to try and change that um, because those are worthy worthy things to be remembered by. <laughs> you've painted the greatest fresco in the world. You've created one of the most beautiful sculptures in the world. You've created one of the greatest sculptures in the world with the David. But however, I think he would say 
that he wanted to be remembered by St. Peter's. He, he said he was God's architect. He honestly believed that he was put there by God in order to build God's church. And so he dedicated himself in the last part of his life to God's purpose. And that was the reason he could not go back to Florence, not only because the Pope said you're going to be employed in this project, but because Michelangelo was deeply, deeply invested in creating this church, which he believed he was put there by the Lord to create the greatest church on earth. And so that, for him, was his greatest contribution to, to art. Because in some ways he felt, certainly at the end of his life, that he had wasted an awful lot of his life on things that didn't matter, things that were not devoted to the salvation of his soul. And that's what he worried about, as many maybe old people do. They begin to worry about their sins and the way they've squandered their life. And Michelangelo certainly did. He felt like he had squandered many, many years on things that didn't matter so much. And now he had finally found something that truly mattered to him. Mm. What a fun and dynamic conversation today, Bill. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. Again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Wallace has written on Michelangelo includes Michelangelo, God's Architect, the story of his final years and greatest masterpiece, and Michelangelo, the artist, the man, and his times. I'll drop links to both those books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Bill and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.